So before we turn our attention to the book of Numbers this evening, we like to begin each semester of study by laying some foundational principles that establish how we approach the Word of God. These principles serve as a framework that help us study the Bible well. Each of us as individuals bear responsibility for what we do with the contents of this book. So we want to make sure that we approach the word that the Lord has given us in the correct way and with great care. So these principles, which we call Principles for Better Bible Study, they are on page 8 of your study guide, are going to help us do that. So the first principle is that the Bible is a book about God. And that probably seems very, very obvious, but I can assure you that that is something that we often skip over, sometimes we miss it completely, and other times we just completely underemphasize it. But the point of the entire Bible is God himself. And the purpose of the entire Bible is to prepare us for and to point us to him. So as those who study the Bible, we're going to have to be very intentional in keeping the point of the Bible at the center of our study. Every word, every character, every person, every event, every verse, every chapter in this book has something to reveal to us about the nature and the character of God. So we study the Bible primarily looking for those truths. The second principle is really a natural corollary to the first. If the Bible is a book about God, then that means that the Bible is not a book about you and I. So that means that we have to stop studying it as if it is. That means that we should not enter into our time of study intently focused in on improving our lives, our relationships, our finances, our self-esteem, and so on and so forth. Because when we enter in looking first for answers to all of those problems, then who are we making this a book about? Us. But who is it a book about? It's a book about God. So I don't want you to misunderstand me. We are going to learn so much about who we are, and we're going to learn so much about all of those things that I just mentioned as we study the Word of God. But we learn about ourselves and those things as we learn about who God is, because who God is informs everything else. So we study first to learn about God. A good rule of thumb for Bible study is that the he has to come before the me in my time of study. The third principle is that the Bible tells one big story. The Bible tells the most amazing story of all time. The point of the entire Bible is to tell this one story. And there is one consistent message from God to man from the beginning to the end. I want you to listen to how simply this children's storybook Bible boils it down for us. It says the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones that he loves. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of God loving his children and coming to rescue them. 
So this is the story in which the book of Numbers is embedded. And when we understand that big story, then it helps us to better understand all of the smaller stories within that bigger story of the Bible. Principle number four is that the Bible is about real people and a living God who speaks to us right now. One of the things that I've noticed in the years that I've spent teaching the Bible is that we often tend to distance ourselves from the people and the places and the events in the Bible. And we do this by focusing in on how completely different the people are from us and how, how foreign the places are and how far away and how completely unrelevant to our lives the events of the Bible are. But the people and the places and the events of the Bible are absolutely relevant to us today. But it's our job as those who study the Bible to try to figure out how. So as best as we can, when we study scripture, we want to try to actually step into the stories as these people are living them and walk along these with these characters as they learn about the nature and character of God. When we do that, it makes it much easier for us to recognize the present tense reality of God's word speaking to us now through these people and through their stories. Principle number five is that the Bible is a supernatural book. Although it was written by human hands, the words of the Bible are divinely inspired, which means that ultimately we attribute authorship of the Bible to God himself. Because of that, we read it and we approach it in a way that is different from reading or approaching any other book. We make sure that we come to the Bible humbly, that we place ourselves in submission to the words of the Bible instead of coming at it and, and lording our authority over it. We realize that we are wholly dependent on the Spirit of God to lead us into an understanding of this text. So we approach it prayerfully. We use the minds that the Lord gave us to read it and to study it and to press into it and to ask questions and to wrestle with it. And then we come to God and we ask the Spirit of God to lead us into an understanding and an acceptance of it. Principle number six is context is crucial. The single most important thing you need to remember to study the Bible well is this. Context determines everything. You cannot understand any verse of scripture until you first have an understanding of the context from which that verse of scripture was pulled. The Bible was written as individual books by individual people to individual people or to groups of people for specific purposes during very specific cultural and historical time frames and within a certain genre of literature, each one. So in order to understand something, we have to know who wrote it, why they wrote it, when they wrote it, who they wrote it to, and so on and so forth. One of the best tips I was ever given for learning how to study the Bible was this, and that is that we cannot understand what it means to us now until we first understand what it means to them then. So that's going to be a challenge sometimes, but I think that we're up for it. We're going to work to figure out what it means to them then before we can figure out what it means to us now.
Principle number seven is that commitment is key. Coming to know God through the study of his word is not going to happen by accident. Perhaps you've noticed that by now. It takes time, it takes intentionality, and I have found that you always have to give up something else in order to make it happen. So we want to just say that to you at the outset of this nine weeks of study together. We want to encourage you to stay the course, to focus on the process, to keep coming back, to participate in your small group setting, to learn from the teaching. And that is because we are a group of women who know very well and very personally the power that the living word of God has to impact a woman to actually change her heart and to change her mind, and then that works itself out to her family and her children and her church and her community. And that is something that we sincerely desire for each and every one of you. So with all of that said, we can now finally and at last turn to the book of Numbers. But in keeping with our principles for better Bible study, the first thing that we need to do is look closely at the context of the book of Numbers. Because doing that is going to help us understand how this single book of the Bible fits into the rest of Scripture. Because the story of Numbers actually begins long before the book of Number opens. And that's because the book of Numbers is just one small part of the entire story that Scripture is telling us. This story begins in the book of Genesis with the triune God of the universe who in an overflow of his perfect love created the world and everything in it. And then as the crown of his creation, he made us, humans, to be his children and to rule the world on his behalf. But in Genesis chapter 3, when given the opportunity to choose between trusting God or trusting ourselves, we chose ourselves. And that choice created a fracture in the relationship between God and humankind. And that one fracture instantaneously broke everything in the world. We broke fellowship with God, and the effects of that brokenness rippled all throughout God's good creation. And yet God still reigned, and he still ruled over all, and he refused to give up on his children. Even in the midst of our rebellion, he promised that he would one day send the one who could undo what we had done and find a way to restore the relationship between God and humanity once again. However, the effects of our broken decision had created hurt and division and pain. It had turned us against God. It had turned husband against wife. It had turned brother against brother. And the pain of that brokenness reached such a high point that in Genesis chapter 6, we come to this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So in response to this very great wickedness of mankind, the Lord sends this powerful flood over the face of the earth. And yet the grace of God given through one righteous man, Noah, 
saved us all from God's just and holy wrath. And then generations later, through the line of one of Noah's sons, came a man named Abraham. And Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan land, but upon hearing the voice of God to follow him out of that land, Abraham obeyed the voice of the Lord. And with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God moves to correct the broken bent that the story of mankind had taken. And God does this in the most curious way. God does this through a series of promises that he makes to Abraham. God promises Abraham, who was a childless, 75-year-old man at the time, that he would be the father of an entire nation of people, that kings would come from him. And God promised that he would give this people, this family of Abraham, a place, a land of their own. And God promised that he would protect these people and that he would provide for his people and that his very presence would be with his people. And then as if that weren't enough, on top of all of these promises, God tagged on this last and mysterious promise when he said to Abraham, in you, all of the families on the earth will be blessed. Now, Abraham could not have known at the time the significance of that promise. But because you and I have this in our hand, we have the ability to do something that Abraham could not do. Because we have this, we have the ability to pan out and look at the full story of Scripture, and we can know that that promise that God made to Abraham was the beginning of something big. That promise was an indication that one day, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, would come from the line of Abraham. Because of the significance of that promise given to Abraham at that time, at that moment, the entire storyline of Scripture shifts. It turns to focus in intently on this one man, Abraham, and the family who would come from him because this is the line through who Christ would one day come. And these were the Israelites, the people God raised up through Abraham and his wife Sarah, whose son was Isaac, whose son was Jacob, who God renamed Israel. And the Israelites were a people created for and marked by their Lord God creator. And they were to display the glory of God through their love for him and through their obedience to him. The last half of the book of Genesis looks in closely at the beginning of God's covenant family. God had placed the Israelites in the land of Canaan and he had promised that one day he would give them that land. But then at the end of Genesis, something really unexpected happens, and this devastating famine just sweeps through the land of Canaan. But even in the midst of those circumstances, God is faithful to care for his people. And this time he does so through a man named Joseph. Joseph, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, who was the son of Israel, who years late before had been sold into Egypt as a slave. But in God's sovereignty, he had protected Joseph during his time in Egypt, and he had even raised him to a position of great prestige and power. So at the moment of the Israelites' greatest need, at just the right time, Joseph was able to bring his family in 
under the abundant provision of the Egyptians. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, and then we enter into the pages of Exodus. Hundreds of years have passed. The Israelites have grown from an extended family to this entire people group. And they were no longer welcomed guests in the land of Egypt as they were in the years where Joseph was living, but they are now feared as a foreign presence. So in order to stunt the growth of the Israelites and to subdue them as a people, they are enslaved by the Egyptians. But the people of God cry out to God in the midst of their slavery, and God hears the cries of his people. God calls out from among the Israelites a man named Moses, and he commands Moses to lead the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. However, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is unwilling to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh's resistance to the will of God sets the stage for an absolutely stunning move of redemption upon the lives of God's people. And through a series of miraculous events, the the ten plagues and, and the parting of the Red Sea, God indeed makes a way for Moses to leave the Israelites triumphantly out of the land of their enslavement. So at this point in the story, we know where it is that God has taken his people from, and yet the question remains, where is God leading them to? The Israelites already knew the place of their final destination as God had revealed it to them. It was Canaan, which they referred to as the land of promise. But what they did not know was the route by which God would take them there. The Israelites were about to embark upon a journey that would demand their unwavering trust in the one who was guiding them. I remember learning in my high school math class that the shortest distance between any two points was simply a straight line. There was a more or less straight line route out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. But in the book of Exodus, we read that when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he did not take them to Canaan via this straight line path. But the book of Exodus tells us that God instead led them by way of the wilderness, which, as you'll very soon see, was a very non-direct path. So it kind of leaves us wondering, why? Why would God not immediately take his people to the place of his promise? Why would he first take them through a place of testing and of trying and of challenge? It's going to take us the full course of this study to fully explore that question and all of the answers that come along with it. But I'm going to do you a favor tonight, and I'm going to give you a short answer now. It's because the Israelites did not yet fully know who God was or who, as his people, they were called to be. In the wilderness, God would teach them these things. These lessons began in the second half of the book of Exodus. And the first major stop in the Israelites' journey is Mount Sinai. And some very important things happen at Mount Sinai. 
At Mount Sinai, God invited the Israelites to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And today, we refer to this as the Mosaic Covenant. This covenant was centered around the divine law that God gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And as we study through the book of Numbers, it's going to be very important for us to remember that this covenant carried with it obligations for the part of both parties, Israel and God. When Israel entered into this covenant with God, they agreed that they would abide by the law that God had given them. That was their obligation. And God promised that if the Israelites kept covenant with him, and if they kept his law, then he would just more than abundantly bless them. But he also warned that if they broke covenant with him, if they did not keep his law, then he would punish them. This was God's obligation. It's very easy for us to make the mistake of viewing the law as nothing more than just a bunch of rules that God wanted Israel to follow, but it was so much more than that. Whenever the law is referred to elsewhere in the Old Testament, it is just always referred to as this thing of great beauty and great value and great splendor. It it was a gift that God gave to the Israelites. It was not this heavy burden that he laid upon their shoulder. The law represented to the Israelites a way of living, a way of being. The purpose of the covenant was to set the Israelites apart as God's holy people. And it was obedience to God's law that was going to accomplish this. Through their obedience to the law, the Israelites were going to reflect the holiness of God to the surrounding nations. It would make them a light in a dark world. Listen to what God said in Exodus chapter 19. He said, now, if you will listen carefully to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you look closely at that verse, you can see the covenant language embedded in that promise. God said, if you keep my covenant, then you will be my people. So it was the keeping of God's law and the keeping of his covenant that were going to distinctly mark the Israelites as God's holy people. The Israelites had a role to fulfill and they had a part to play. So the Israelites wholeheartedly agreed to the terms, and they enter into a covenant relationship with God. But very quickly, we see the covenant broken. The Israelites falter, and they fell, and yet God is patient. He allows time for their faith in him to grow and be nurtured. God remains faithful to the promises that he made to his people. In fact, as the book of Exodus closes, we see one of these promises coming to fruition as God's presence comes to dwell in the tabernacle amidst his people in the wilderness. However, we see in the very last words of the book of Exodus that although God dwells amongst his people in the wilderness, that their sin and their unfaithfulness to the covenant has made it so that they cannot enter into the tabernacle, into his holy presence. And that brings us to the book of Leviticus.
In Leviticus, God tells the people everything that they had to do to dwell in the presence of a holy God. So we've already seen that God desired to dwell with his people, but that their sin and their unfaithfulness had created this chasm that had to be crossed. So in the book of Leviticus, God tells the people all the sacrifices that had to be made, all the mediators that had to be put into place, the priest, all the ways that they had to atone for their sin and purify themselves. God tells them everything that they had to do to bridge that gap. So although the book of Leviticus doesn't really progress the storyline of the Israelites much, it does reveal to us so much about the holiness of God. And that is going to continue to be a major theme as we work throughout our study of Numbers. The book of Numbers was written primarily by Moses. And that is the same is true about the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Those four books, along with Numbers, constitute the first five books of the Bible, and collectively they are known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And once you start your reading for this week and you get about 17 seconds into chapter one of Numbers, you're going to understand why the book is entitled Numbers. There are a lot of numbers in this book. The people are numbered, the tribes are numbered, the gifts and the sacrifices and the offerings are numbered. The years wandering in the wilderness are numbered. So even though this book is full of numbers, it is not a book about numbers. The Hebrew title of this book, In the Wilderness, more accurately depicts what this book is about. The book of Numbers chronicles the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness from the base of Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab, where they will be poised and ready for their conquest of Canaan. Now, the straight-line version of this journey would have taken about two weeks. The Israelites' version of this journey took about 40 years. So the question you're probably wondering there is, what on earth happened? In the wilderness, the people of God are repeatedly faced with the choice to either trust and obey or doubt and defy the God who had led them out of slavery. And where the Israelites chose to trust and obey, we're going to see their journey progress. And where they choose to doubt and defy, we're going to see their way grow stagnant. Maybe some of you are already figuring out how relevant this particular book of the Bible might be to your life right now. The book of Numbers has so much to teach us about the choices that we have as we follow closely after Christ. There will be a hundred different choices along the way where we're given the opportunity to choose to either trust and obey or doubt and defy. And each choice impacts the progression of our journey. Also in the book of Numbers, we are going to learn so much about the manner in which God actually responds to the choices of his people. God alone knows where each and every one of us in this room are in the progression of our faith. And ladies, that is the exact place where he is going to meet you. But as God proves himself to be faithful to you, he is going to expect that you actually begin walking in faith and that you begin trusting and walking in obedience to what the Lord has said. 
So as I prepare to set you loose in the next few minutes on the uh, study for this week, I want to give you fair warning that Numbers is not the easiest book of the Bible to make sense of. There are going to be a lot of opportunities for us to go back to those principles of better Bible study. As I warned you before, we are going to have to be really intentional, intentional about understanding what it meant to them then before we even try to make sense of what it means to us now. So although this book is gonna prove to be a bit of a challenge, I wanna very clearly say to you that that does not mean we shouldn't study it. I have personally found this study of this particular book of the Bible to be absolutely edifying to my life right now today. I want you to know that you need to remember those ground rules that we laid. I want you to trust the process. I want you to do as much as you can in your study guide every week, and then I want you to come every Tuesday trusting that we will make sense of it together. Part of the challenge, I think, in understanding the book of Numbers is just from the fact that it is a mixture of so many different things. It is history. It is narrative. It is law. There are census lists. There are oracles. There is a blessing. So it's going to be a challenge at times to see and understand how it all fits together. But what I want you to remember is that at the heart of this book is the story it tells. It's the story of a journey that the people of God take as they leave behind their life of slavery and journey toward the place of God's promise. It's a journey that we not only read about in Scripture, but a journey that as God's present-day people, we actually take. The wilderness journey is the means through which God sanctifies his people the means through which he grows us increasingly in holiness. It's the place where he teaches us more about who he is and who, as his people, we are called to be. So instead of thinking of numbers as some ancient travel log that really has very little to do with our lives today, I think we would be better served to view it as a type of guidebook, a tool that helps a traveler successfully journey from one destination to the next. Many years ago, I took a very long journey myself. I graduated college, and then I moved all the way to the other side of the world, to Japan, where I lived and worked for a year. And during that year in Japan, I carried this around as my near constant companion. It is the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Japan. And it was filled with helpful tips for the weary traveler. The New Testament authors of Scripture point to the book of Numbers in much the same way. The Apostle Paul saw this record of the wilderness journey of the Israelites as an invaluable source of warning and of instruction. He references many of the same events that we're going to be looking at very closely in these next nine weeks of study. And then he says this to the Corinthians. He says, these things happened to them as example. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he he stands must be careful not to fall. Remember that. Be careful not to fall. Those words are going to become just a refrain 
behind the study of our book of Numbers. In the same way, the author of Hebrews references the book of Numbers, the events of the book of Numbers. And then he warns those of us who follow Christ today not to test and stray and go astray and try God in the same ways that they did. He tells us, do not fall into the same patterns of disobedience. So hopefully by now you are very curious about what all the Israelites are going to do in the wilderness. There's going to be a lot to keep us busy concerning the bad behavior of the people of God in the book of Numbers. But the book of Numbers is not about the bad behavior of the people of God. This is a book about the one who, despite their failings, is able to bring his people to the place he has promised. Because the only thing more important than a trustworthy guidebook is having a trustworthy guide. Like the Israelites, we too are a people on a journey. A journey away from our slavery to sin and a slavery toward the place that God has promised us. We know what it is that the Lord has freed us from and we know where it is that he will one day finally lead us to. But what we do not know is the route by which he will lead us there. We too are on a journey that demands our unwavering trust in the one who is guiding us. So ladies, let's allow the guidebook and the guide to do its work on us this semester. Let's allow the faith of the Israelites to encourage us and the failures of the Israelites correct us as we journey together over these next nine weeks toward the land of our own inheritance.